is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome, everyone. I'm Roy Campbell, I'm president of the National Bureau of Asian Research, and I'm so pleased to have as a guest today Professor Bob Sutter. Bob is a professor in the practice of international affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. He's a longtime observer, specialist, and analyst of developments in Asia, spent a full career at the Congressional Research Service, served as a national intelligence officer for East Asia, and has had a, a parallel academic career that is really just a marvel to all of us who count him as a hero in the field. So it's a particular pleasure to, to get to interact with Bob today. Several years ago, Bob was the principal investigator for an NBR project, resulting in a volume that Bob co-edited with uh, NBR president, my predecessor, Rich Ellings, entitled Axis of Authoritarians. And so given the events in China of the last several days and the, the growing China-Russia relationship, we thought it would be helpful to revisit that project and the findings of the report for the purpose of maybe a better understanding of this really critical relationship and, and its implications for the United States and for our allies and partners in Asia and across the world. So, Bob, welcome. Thanks so much for being here today, and I look forward to a great discussion with you. Thanks very much, Roy. It's really a pleasure to recall those days when we worked really hard on uh, Gosh, there were 130 of us working on that project. I think we had 50 papers. It was a remarkable thing. That, uh, as I recall, it reached a sort of a, a climax with the publication of the book. I think that came in 2018. We had a pretty good idea of what we were going to say uh, by the end of 2007. Let's set the scene a little bit. President Putin visited Beijing, had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with uh, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, on February 4th. They issued a joint statement and it seemed intended to convey within the context of the Olympic setting, this really strengthening bilateral relationship and, and obviously messages being sent to uh, other international players, including the United States with their most recent meeting. But this isn't the first time. It's really a trend that has been ongoing. The, the two militaries uh, operate together and exercise together in ever more sophisticated ways. They support each other in the UN, the UN Security Council. They make supportive diplomatic statements that serve the ends of the other in each in their regions. And the two areas where those are most prominent in our minds now are Ukraine and Taiwan. So there's a lot of there there. And so having the chance to explore this with you is really, I think, particularly timely at this moment. Why don't you from your perspective, Bob, share some of the most critical findings from that book uh, several years ago entitled Axis of Authoritarians. Well, it's, I think the findings really hold up pretty well in a variety of ways. We really did see things coming that were quite remarkable. Uh, these two countries were working together uh, in a way that was really, uh, it took us a while to, to dawn on us on this because we had different views, but it they were working in ways that really had one thing in common. And the, the one thing in common that had in all these different areas that they worked together was that they seemed to be working against U.S. interests. Uh, we eventually came to a general view uh, that uh, these two powers were working together 
in ways that would advance their interests at the expense of others, and in particular, the interests of the United States. And this involved the spheres of influence they had in Asia for China and in Europe and in uh, the Middle East uh, for, uh, for Russia. And the development of the relationship was very strong. These leaders seemed to be very committed to it. They had areas of differences, but they managed them in a way that allowed for the relationship to continue to advance. And uh, I think one of the key things here that was important is that both of them seemed to think that the United States, the West in general, Europe and Japan in particular, were weak. And that this was an opportunity for them to move ahead with their ambitions, which, uh, of course, come at the expense of others. And those others uh, tend to be allies and partners of the United States in particular and the United States itself. And so the, so we, for, we saw this by after about two years of deliberations, a year and a half, perhaps, by the end of 2017, we saw this. And that was quite striking. And I think that's continuing. What we see today is, uh, is this kind of collaboration. I think we're much less hesitant today to call it as it is, which is uh, authoritarianism, uh, authoritarian states working together in ways uh, detrimental to the order that the United States and its partners and allies support. We, weren't, uh, we were a little hesitant about that uh, back in 2017. We saw Putin as, as strong against the West. Uh, we didn't necessarily see China uh, so strong against the West. They were uh, big stakeholders in good relations with the West. And so it was harder to identify them that way. But as we examined how the Chinese collaborated with the, with the Russians, then we, uh, we came more and more toward that conclusion. So this is the main finding that I think holds up today. Is, uh, is that evolution of the relationship. We really called it well there. But if you'd like, I could talk a little bit about some of the areas that we didn't see that I think are important in understanding the relationship today. Would that be useful, uh, Roy, to do that? That would be, Bob. And, and this, this central finding that the, the shared observation on both China and Russia's part, that, that the West and the United States in particular was weak, and that's what the gravitational pull was in their relationship and not, as so many have said, that our actions were pushing them together. Your right. conclusion very strongly to me and to others was, let's, let's put the causal uh, relationship in the right order. Absolutely, because, because this really, this has a big bearing on what kind of uh, countermeasures you take. In other words, if you, if you think you're coming on too strong and that's driving them together and you don't want them to come together, then you're going to be very, you're going to soften your approach. And uh, we judge that that was not the right approach, that because it, it was, they were coming together because they saw these opportunities in weakness. But Mike talked about a couple of things, which I think are really interesting. It was really fun in a way. In Washington, we were, we were deliberating, we were pretty much set on the findings by the fall of 2017. And that's when we were briefing various people in the, in the State Department and Defense Department and in the National Security Council staff. And we thought we had a really nifty set of findings that Russia and China were really working together against the United States. That was, no, no, very few people were saying that at that time. And so I remember the briefings for the NSC people and they were very nice, and they took notes and everything, but they didn't really say much. And then, lo and behold, about 
three months later, two months later, they come out with their national security strategy. This is in December of 2017, which identifies very starkly uh, China and Russia as the main opponents of the United States. And so, uh, so I don't think, I'm not sure we convinced them of this. Uh, I, all I can say is I think we reinforced it. But those folks put their finger on this and, uh, and they proved to be accurate. Uh, we were a little hesitant. They weren't. They were very direct about this. And this leads to a, a second issue that we didn't really have the same grasp on that others had. And this was the view of China. Our view of China was ambivalent. We had a lot of differences in our group about how to handle China. Was it, did you equate it with Russia or was it, uh, was it a stakeholder with the, with the West and, uh, and therefore unlikely to side with Russia too much in this regard? And so this whole idea of axis of authoritarians, which is the title of the book culminating the project, that idea was uh, not accepted by the, uh, several of the China specialists in, during the deliberations. We gradually moved in that direction, step by step. The more we investigated, the more we saw, oh, China is part of this. This is the, a new appreciation of China as, a, as not just a status quo country worried about its interests, but one that's prepared to change the order uh, in significant ways. And the person that pushed this over more than anybody else was Richard Ellings. He really pushed this over. I mean, and that we not only did this book, but we also did the briefings and we, uh, we were at uh, various academic conferences and Rich was setting it up and making sure that this message was getting across. So various stakeholders, policy stakeholders and academic stakeholders would understand the dynamic between Russia and China as one of these two authoritarian powers looking out for their interests and expanding their power in ways that were detrimental to American interests. So that was, that was quite important. And the Trump people, the administration, the strategists, they seem to understand this and, uh, and their national security strategy and the national defense strategy gave the top, as well as well known, gave top billing to China as a danger along with Russia. So I guess I don't wanna say that we, we were in sync with them to a considerable degree, but we, it took us longer to get there and, uh, and Rich was very important in us seeing that vantage point of uh, Russia-China relations. So that's something that we didn't quite get as well as I think the administration got, and we didn't have quite the harder approach to China that the administration of Trump had. We were more ambivalent, but I think in, uh, in retrospect, as you see the Trump policy toward China followed by the Biden policy toward China, you see this hard, China, hard policy toward China is something that's widely accepted now. This is not something that, that's, uh, that's an outlier view in any event. So those are some of the, the points I think that we missed uh, up to a point, but I think we got the main message uh, well. And, and on a personal level, this was so meaningful for me because this was a way for me to appreciate China. What was Xi Jinping's China? What were they doing? And uh, if you're an evidence-based analyst, this was an excellent exercise in looking at the evidence and saying and coming to judgments that were meaningful. But it, it was iterative in my in my case, and I think in others, it, it, uh, we didn't have this dramatic shift. It was very much over the course of a year and a half, looking at these deliberations, 
and coming to this judgment. Bob, in a minute, I want to come back to, to one of the policy implications that emerged, especially from Rich, as he thought about this changing bilateral relationship between China and Russia. And, and he had some really important ideas to consider that I think are worth revisiting again today. But before we do, you talked about the, the kind of coalescing of, both, of a Trump and Biden administration approach to China in a much harder line. And you have observed, given your experience on the Hill for, for so long, you've observed that that similar phenomenon is in the Congress, right? Would you say a word or two about that as well? Yeah, this is, in my judgment, Roy, this is really the, uh, this is the glue. Uh, it's so important, glue in American hardening policy towards China is the Congress. If you look at the record on 2000, since the national security strategy of Trump, Mr. Trump himself was very erratic in dealing with China. And so he wasn't really strategic in that sense. His people were, were much more strategic, but they disagreed with one another on a lot of issues. And when they started the trade negotiation, you remember that, you may remember that after the trade war began, but then they, they calmed things down. They didn't talk much about China. And it looked like this uh, hard policy that was initiated in December of 2017 might fade. Uh, but Congress rose to this occasion quite dramatically and immediately saw this as a need for the United States to have what they called the whole of government effort to counter the various challenges that China was posing. And these challenges were seen as very strong terms, in urgent terms. China was seeking dominance in high technology industries and doing it in very nefarious ways. And China was seeking dominance in Asia, again, in expansionist bad ways. These things had to be dealt with. And so Congress initiated a whole series of efforts in 2018 that pushed forward this tougher approach. In 2018, 2019, public opinion didn't agree with this. They didn't even understand this, this hard policy. The, the media, mainstream media, was very late in coming to an understanding of this. And if you look at the Democratic candidates in the election campaign of 2019 and the various primaries and so forth, they criticized China a little bit, but they basically dismissed it. They didn't give it much importance. And that included Joseph Biden. Joseph Biden would say repeatedly, China's no danger for us. We're much more powerful than China. That was his standard line. But Congress kept this pressure up. They kept this effort up, and this is bipartisan in Congress. Very key leaders were involved in this and, uh, and still were involved. So it has a great longevity up to the present. And so the upshot here is that this got through that patch. And when COVID hit the United States in 2020 and all the rhetoric between the U.S. and Chinese leaders, then public opinion changed dramatically. And Mr. Biden had to change according to that. And Mr. Trump changed. He stopped being so erratic on China. That continues up to the present and the congressional commitment to this kind of approach. And we're seeing it now in these massive bills that Mr. Schumer and others have put forward that have a whole series of provisions very critical of China, hardening the relationship between the United States and Beijing. Bob, another aspect that, that has stayed with me from that first report was an observation you made early on. And I think we tracked it uh, throughout the couple of years of that project. But at one point, this is probably maybe a year in, you said to an assembled group, listen, these are two leaders that 
appear to like each other in ways that are not fully understandable by us. They're very, very different people, but they demonstrate this kind of odd affection for each other. And that continues to this day. At one point, Bob, you said in the last six years, they have met 35 or 36 times in person. And your judgment was that's unlike any other uh, leader, senior leader relationship in the world. Well, COVID put a damper on that. I don't think we have a sense of how often they met virtually, but they were certainly together again on February 4th in, in Beijing. And that, as I called it, that odd affection was apparent again. What are what are your judgments about the seeming delight that they the two of them have in in being with each other and drawing their two countries' fortunes closer together? Uh, Roy, your question is really excellent. And boy, I wish we knew. If you're an intelligence officer, uh, you say, what evidence do we have of these conversations between Putin and Xi Jinping? And you see, you can look at their body language, look at how they look at each other. And I think this, there's obviously a, a personal relationship between these two. But if you look at the practice of Xi Jinping and look at the practice of Putin, how much does personal sentiment matter for each one of these guys? And I'd have to say, I don't think a lot. I think these are very calculating individuals who are looking at things in a variety of different ways. But the point is that I think they keep meeting with each other. So this is a, and they keep having a very close relationship and, and talking about it a lot. So I think it, it matters for them a, a great deal. It, it adds uh, to the imperative uh, to cooperate together between the two. And here's a dimension that in the in the in the uh, in the the large project we did, we were unable to measure this. How closely do they coordinate? How closely do they collaborate? Do they say, "I'm going to do this and you do that," and that way we'll outfox the Americans? Do they talk like that? That we never really could pin down, and we're not alone. Uh, subsequent studies have tried to do this, and it's very difficult to do this, to find evidence that shows they're really collaborating. For example, after Crimea, I thought that Crimea was something that Xi Jinping benefited from so he could go into the South China Sea and quickly rebuild build those islands, which he did, while the attention of the world was focused on Russia in Europe. Was that by design? Did they collaborate on that? And, uh, and this is something Rich Ellings was always talking about, the two-front war, the two-front type of uh, competition with the United States. Uh, would we have that kind of a situation? We never did up to this point have that. But this is a, a dimension of that personal relationship, which I wish we had more information on. In other words, I think there is a lot of collaboration between these two. Uh, what do they talk about? I don't think they talk about platitudes. I think they talk about meaningful things. And those meaningful things, if you look at what they want, both sides, they want things that will be uh, opposed to the interests of the United States and its allies and partners. And so this is a, a, a big problem for those countries. I know this is a little long-winded here, and I'm not really answering the question because I don't have the evidence to do that. I see What I see is these the personal relationship, and I say this must mean something to them, but I can't tell you how much it means. And to this day, I think we still have a problem in trying to figure out 
How do they coordinate together in ways that undermine the American? I think that's an important point. As you said, they're not just spinning platitudes at each other, right? If you meet 40 times over seven or eight years, uh, that's going to wear thin. And you, you still have important other things you need to do as leaders of the, those two great countries. I think we could safely argue that on the question of collaboration or even coordination, it's much more likely given the close ties between the leaders, right? That's at least we can say that we can make that judgment. And I think that that's important because it really leads us then maybe to this, this next line of inquiry, which is the world is focused on Eastern Ukraine and trying to understand what Russia is hoping to accomplish trying to get in the mind of Vladimir Putin and sense, is he bluffing? Is he really going to go to war? Are sanctions going to deter, have any impact, right? Is this all about the resetting of Eastern Europe after the end of the Cold War? What does your gut tell you, given the work on axis of authoritarians? What does your gut tell you about not so much what Putin's objectives are, but how he sees China's role in that? And then your view on how China sees its own role. In a minute, we'll come to the Taiwan question, but let's first talk about Ukraine. How does how does Putin think about China? What does he want from them? Is China giving it? And maybe what are China's goals? Um, I, certainly he wants the optics that, that, that look like China's behind him in a, in a strong way. Not that they're going to go to war in any way, but they'll back him up when he, they have his back as he's engaging in this reckless uh, type of behavior against Ukraine. China benefits from this. I think uh, the, uh, if there are serious tensions in the Ukraine area, this is going to be a big problem for the United States if it wants to build up its power in dealing with China in Asia. They're going to have to keep a lot of power in Europe because of the tension that Mr. Putin is causing. If it led to a war, that's a very different proposition. In the war would be something, what, did, what would Putin expect from China? I'm not sure. I think he would want as much as he could get, but I, I'm not sure what he would get. I think China does not want war. This is something that the Chinese have been pretty clear about, even uh, in dealing with Donald Trump and dealing with Joseph Biden and these uh, important differences that they have. They're very clear that they, they don't want to have a military conflict with the United States. So I don't think that, that Putin expects uh, that the Chinese will be come in on his side in a military conflict. Maybe he would want them to be raise tensions in the Taiwan area to divert the attention of the United States. Uh, I think uh, Xi Jinping could do such things without going to war. But I think getting to that stage, we're not at that stage, and getting to that stage would be very risky. And I think Mr. Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping does not want that type of a conflict at this point. Now, why am I saying this? I've watched this person interact with the United States, and he has uh, been very careful, uh, even though his government is very critical of the United States on a whole host of things, he's been very careful to avoid a confrontation with the U.S. leader that would lead to military conflict. Very careful indeed on this. And the reasons are pretty obvious. He has many domestic problems that would be greatly exacerbated by the conflict. He's very interdependent with the United States. He talks about they're going to be self-reliant on this, that, and the other thing. They're not self-reliant. They're, very, they're working like hell to get around U.S. restrictions so that they can, uh, they can get all the technology that they need because they don't have it. 
and that if the if there's a big war or, or just this military tension of major consequences, we'll cut all that off. And he knows that. And then his position in Asia is not all that safe. Uh, he has to worry about what other powers would do if he gets into a war with the United States. So if you look at what Trump, Mr. Trump did to Mr. Xi Jinping in a variety of ways, uh, he was very insulting to China at various times. And what did they do to punish him? What did they do to punish most of the U.S. government officials at that time? They punished the Japanese. They punished the Taiwans. They punished the, the Southeast Asian countries. They punished them big time. Now, the Europeans, they never punished these people. Until the last day of the administration, and then they, then they did a, a, a symbolic type of punishment. But basically, they didn't punish them. And I think the same holds true with Biden. And so... Not now. They don't want this now. And maybe they will, you know, one assumes that they will be prepared for this type of military confrontation in the future. They certainly seem to be building for that, but they don't seem to be ready for this. So that gives me some assurance that they showed Mr. Putin that China's not going to come in on your side militarily. It's not at this time. That's very helpful, Bob. I and mean, there have been some pundits who say this is a, a distraction that uh, Putin's efforts in Ukraine provide a cover for Xi Jinping to, you know, undertake some surprise attack on Taiwan and achieve its objectives there. I'm a little skeptical of that approach for the idea for the reasons you say, but that doesn't mean that what Putin's doing is not without risk for the United States and Asia. Right. I, I was speaking with a senior Japanese diplomat today who said, our concern is that the United States will once again revert or return its attention to Europe, given all that it said about making Asia the priority, that one of the justifications for the abrupt end of, of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan was to essentially clear the decks so that we could focus more, more directly on strategic competition with China. Others in the region are saying, is Ukraine going to going to suck the United States back into a Eurocentric approach to our foreign and, and national security policy. And that's a real concern. What do you think? I think it's a concern in the administration. And if you look at the underlying this concern and the high profile of U.S. officials to show that they intend nonetheless to follow through with Asia was uh, Secretary Blinken's visit to the region. I found that amazing. Here we are at the highest point of the tension, and he's, he's out of town. And he spends three days in Australia, and then he goes to Fiji, and then he goes to Hawaii, all for very important meetings with individuals in the region. This shows that Mr. Blinken, at least, feel, and remember, this is a very close team, Blinken, Sullivan, and, uh, and others. Mr. Blinken is showing that they understand this, this concern and want to make sure that Asia understands uh, that the U.S. is following through. But if this continues for a long time, you're right, Roy, this is something we're going to have to worry about. Will the U.S. have to build various relationships in Europe again to defend them? And that will take away attention and that will take away uh, resources for the effort to deal with China in Asia. No question about that. Uh, one other point that I would add is that what Mr. Putin is doing, though, is underlining uh, to the European countries that this 
axis of authoritarians is a serious matter. This is something that really affects them fundamentally. And I think it's going to build greater support in Europe for doing the needful in securing the situation in Europe. In other words, greater defense expenditures and so forth. And so I'm not certain how that's going to work, but I think that's, it's not just the U.S. that's going to be doing this. And I think that the Putin's behavior just warrants it to, to the, in the first degree. So those are some of my ideas about this. But we don't know uh, what Mr. Putin's going to do. That's what he's trying to shake us up a little bit. And I think that thus far, the Biden people have kept calm. They've been steady, clear, and they have not backed away. And so I think that's all good. And it's consistent with the with the approach of, uh, of the administration in dealing with the priorities uh, in the world today. Well, that then brings us to Taiwan, Bob. You know, increasing Chinese pressure of all sorts on Taiwan, military, economic, uh, diplomatic. And Taiwan is, you know, acting in its own interests in really effective ways. It's not a beleaguered partner that somehow is on the ropes completely. But there are those who say the lessons of Ukraine will, will really resonate in Asia and, and for Taiwan and for allied support of Taiwan. How do you think about it? How do you think about Taiwan in, in the midst of the mess that is uh, Eastern Ukraine at the moment? Often the Taiwan uh, situation is, is characterized by U.S. being diverted its attention and then the Chinese taking advantage of it uh, to attack Taiwan. This, this kind of argument is often made, and I think that's very simple. And uh, in my remarks earlier, I just talked about how Xi Jinping is trying to avoid this kind of thing for the time being. Uh, so that's something that could happen later on. But I think, uh, and others say, that the United States has been too supportive of Taiwan. And this has provoked Beijing in various ways, that it's moved beyond the, the outlines of the American one-China policy in ways that Beijing cannot accept. And therefore, this is going to prompt Beijing to take forceful measures against Taiwan. So these kinds of dangers have, have been looked at by various experts. And what they do, they focus on the, the Thucydides trap, Taiwan being the focal point of this uh, trap, or they focus on the security dilemma between the two powers, arguing that war is just around the corner. I just don't think that's the case. And, and what I see that that puts, uh, what that does is basically say the U.S. doesn't have the ability to advance its relations with Taiwan and support Taiwan under great pressure from the PRC without leading to war. I think that can be done. I think that is being done. I think we've seen a remarkable improvement and strengthening of U.S. relations with Taiwan during the Trump government and with the Biden government. This has been a, an extraordinary incremental series of changes economically, uh, militarily, and diplomatically. And it's, I think it's worked. And it's compensated Taiwan for losses of diplomatically that it's, under, that it's suffered as a result of BRC pressure. And it's supported Taiwan as it faces these very strong dangers from the PRC militarily, intimidating actions, and with so-called sharp power to uh, influence the domestic situation in Taiwan. So I think this is good. This is necessary to do. And it makes the U.S.-Taiwan relationship strong. 
I think it's uh, it makes the people in Taiwan more uh, sure of their uh, security. It shows close American support for Asia dealing with China, and I don't think it necessarily leads to war or conflict with China. I think there's a way to do this, and I think the administration is doing it and saying we have a one-China policy. And we don't accept certain things, and we we see Beijing changing the status quo, and we're going to change it back. We're going to we're going to be responsive to this. And so, if Beijing is complaining about the advancing U.S. Taiwan relations, the first thing you go to the Beijing and say the reason we're doing this is because what you're doing to Taiwan. And so, uh, if you calm down, then maybe we can calm down. I think we're at that stage. I think we've been in much worse situations in the Taiwan area uh, over the past 70 years, and we've uh, managed these types of situations. It's never pretty, but we have managed the differences, avoided war. And uh, why we would have war now uh, when uh, other, at this point, I think given the priorities of the Chinese government and uh, and given the, the situation, they can wait. Taiwan's not going anywhere. Uh, Taiwan's not moving toward independence. Uh, sentiment in Taiwan is against the PRC, but there's no no big boost in going for independence in Taiwan. They recognize that's too dangerous, so I think they can wait and uh, see how the how the situation emerges in the future. Uh, because having a war with the United States is just disastrous from their point of view. It would uh, have a tremendous impact on them, and so I think that's so. Basically, I think we should calm down a little bit about this and recognize that there is a way for the U.S. policy to uh, move forward with Taiwan uh, without necessarily causing a war with Beijing, and we should do that, and this will help reassure Taiwan, and Beijing is in this for the long haul, and so they may continue to raise tensions on Taiwan, but as they do this, they alienate Taiwan people more and more. They deepen the uh, uh, identity in Taiwan against the PRC, they strengthen the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, they may find this is counterproductive, but I don't expect them to back off anytime soon. So I just think we're, we're in this kind of tense situation. We have to get used to it in dealing with Taiwan, and maybe we have to get used to the situation in Ukraine, tense situation there. That will probably persist as well. When we have this acute rivalry with China, we're going to have these tensions, and we're going to have to deal with them. In a, in a way that we don't exaggerate the, the dangers and uh, we, we, we're realistic about the dangers. That's very helpful, Bob. One last question. As we step beyond or think into the future a bit about our interactions with both China and Russia from the perspective of the United States, is it possible for us to think about a relationship with one that would somehow disadvantage the other. So our own approach to driving a wedge in whatever form or fashion between this strengthening relationship between the two countries. It's difficult to think of about in the moment, right? They're both presenting themselves in, in very counterproductive, even odious ways to with each within the respective regions. But this was a theme in the in the original axis of authoritarians and is it possible to somehow revisit the leaning to one side approach that was so advantageous to the united states in the 1980s in our relationship with china at the very end of the cold war to the disadvantage 
of the Soviet Union. Is it possible to revisit that kind of thinking? Are we in a, a different era altogether? I'm afraid I think we're in a different era altogether. And we dealt with this a lot in the uh, project, Rory. And you come down to the situation where this is just the Russia-China relationship today is just totally different than the Russia-China relationship in the 1960, late 60s, 70s, and 80s when they were ready to go to war with one another, and then they remained uh, each other's uh, primary uh, uh, opponent. It's so different now. So the idea that somehow you could woo one against the other would be very difficult to do because one thing they have a, a common interest in, which they've developed, is the interest in uh, in expanding their spheres of influence and their power at the expense of others, uh, which has a common uh, objective of weakening the United States in these areas around their periphery in particular and other areas as well. And that common thing holds them together uh, in, a, in a variety of ways. And so I think what you'd expect is that it, that you first have you go to Putin, he's the weaker of the two, he's becoming subservient to China over and more and more, and therefore this is against his great power pretensions, and therefore we could play with that and maneuver in a way that would woo him away from China. And I think that wouldn't work. I think he would pocket it, the advantage that he would get from the concessions the U.S. would give, and he would stay with China, and he would keep China well informed of what he was doing. And the same thing, I think, with, uh, with, the, uh, with the, uh, China. And today, uh, in the past, as we uh, have talked, the common goal was to exploit weaknesses. Now they have pressures. Now the allies and partners are unified in pressures, and those pressures probably will, will increase uh, against Putin and, and, and against China as we struggle in this, uh, in this era. It's not a pretty picture. It's a, it's a real dilemma in, uh, in trying to figure out how we're going to do this. Resources will be a very important point of debate. We really haven't gotten to that point yet in this discussion of the need for resources to do this. But I think that uh, that's more likely to be a catalyst for trying to find some other way out because it's so expensive to do what we're doing. But as I see the situation unfold, I think we have no alternative. We have to strengthen ourselves. We have to strengthen our allies and partners. And I think, uh, I think the, tr the Trump strategy understood that, not Trump himself. I don't think he understood that. And I think the, uh, the Biden uh, team understands this. So for the time being, I think this is what we're going to what we're going to see, and I would argue, I hope we don't see some short vision type of ex effort to maneuver one side against the other. Uh, I think that would be, I think it would be counterproductive. I think it would be seen as a sign of real weakness, and you would get greater challenges from them as a result. Well, Bob, this has been a fascinating discussion. So timely to revisit the findings of that important study from several years ago and and apply some of those lessons that we learned then to the contemporary context thanks so much for spending the time with us today it's been a real treat to interact with you and i hope our discussion has been very helpful for our audience so thanks again professor bob sutter george washington university and thanks to our listening audience have a good day
Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.